Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome back from your weekends. This is The Scramble. Uh, and we have, I think, an interesting show for you. I know it's an interesting show. Uh, the only possible thing that could go wrong would be that I would screw it up. Uh, and hopefully that won't happen. So later in the show, you're going to hear um, about... You know, you may, you may be a UConn basketball fan and remember the exploits of Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird. But there's some stories that you don't know, including Diana Taurasi may have played the best game of her life, not for UConn uh, and not for the Phoenix Mercury in the WNBA, but for a Russian team called Spartak. And her reasons for playing that brilliant game have a lot to do with the owner of Spartak, who was... Uh, not only a former KGB spy, apparently, but also a guy who was heavily involved in the Russian gangland, shall we say. Uh, but nonetheless, well, anyway, we'll tell you that story. We'll also um, talk to you a little bit about a mystery. So uh, Carrie Saxon Perry was the first black woman mayor uh, of any major New England city. So that's a pretty big first. Um, and she, when she died, you would have expected... You know, I mean, some front page stories and some memorial services and stuff. In fact, nothing happened. We She died a year ago. We just found out about a couple of days ago. So uh, we'll talk about that. I don't know that we have an answer to how that happened or why that happened, but we'll do the best we can with an excellent guest. We're going to begin with uh, some impeachment-related coverage. Uh, we're specifically going to focus, because the story is so big and sprawling, you can only focus on one thing at a time. We're going to focus on John Bolton. Now, why are we going to be talking about John Bolton? Mainly because his lawyer, Chuck Cooper, uh, on Friday, uh, dangled a line in, in a letter to the House's general counsel saying that Bolton was personally involved in many relevant meetings and conversations that have not yet been discussed in other impeachment uh, test testimonies, but that relate to this Ukraine story. So uh, that obviously has got everybody's attention. Of course, uh, well, we'll find out what that could mean uh, and whether or not we'll ever know what it does mean uh, from our guest. Greg Jaffe is a national political reporter for The Washington Post. He's joining us by Skype. Uh, Greg Jaffe, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So uh, maybe just to begin with a quick primer, a quick uh, reminder of who John Bolton is. Uh, he was until uh, September of that year. He was the the national security security advisor to uh, to President Trump. What else is worth knowing about him? You know, he'd been in the job for a little bit over a year. He replaced H.R. McMaster, uh, the previous national security advisor, who. Uh, clashed with Trump a little bit, or Trump didn't especially like. Um, uh, Bolton was brought in to sort of fix it. He's uh, a very hawkish conservative, prominent Fox News commentator. I think the president liked what he saw on TV uh, and liked it less in person. <laughs> right. So, um, and, and uh, many things are in dispute, even the circumstances under which John Bolton departed the employment of the White House. Trump said he was fired, uh, and Bolton made a point of saying he resigned, correct? 
That's right. Yeah. So the exact, I think it was probably a little bit of a combination of both. Okay. So one of the things that we do know, or at least that has emerged in sworn testimony already, um, mostly because uh, of uh, Russia advisor uh, Fiona Hill, was that that John Bolton, in his capacity of national security advisor, did not approve, according to her, uh, of any kind of arrangement that would tie military aid to Ukraine to some kind of um, political investigation involving the the Bidens or possibly a, a, a sort of parallel theory about um, who hacked the 2016 election, that he, that he didn't like it. He may have even called it a drug deal. Yeah. So there were two things in particular that the uh, Ukrainians wanted. One was their military aid. The main one they wanted and then the thing they'd been working for the longest was an Oval Office meeting for with Trump uh, for their president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. And that's important because it sends a signal to the Russians that, hey, the Americans are on our side. We've got, um, you know, the president's backing. Uh, so those were the two things he wanted. And um, those were the two things that were sort of being dangled in exchange for um, you know, the investigations that, that Trump wanted. And uh, so there were, and it's a, the other thing that's important to note is there are kind of two lines working here. There's a sort of a regular line that works through Bolton and the NSC, which things seem above board and proper. And then there's a sort of a shadow policy led by a trio of sort of Trump advisors and involves Rudy Giuliani. And that's where you kind of have this shakedown. And Bolton's view was he didn't want to have anything to do with those other guys and what they were doing. Right. And and I think we can pin down certain other things that, that, you know, yes, Bolton always has been a hawk, kind of a militaristic guy. Ukraine is in the midst of a war uh, against uh, sort of Russian-backed and Russian-backing uh, people uh, in, in, who are opposing the actual government of Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian troops are not well-equipped. They're fighting in sneakers instead of boots and firing old Kalashnikovs. They really do need both non-lethal and lethal military aid. And so, I mean, I, I think we can safely assume, based on what we know, uh, that Bolton was very eager to get that money uh, over to Ukraine, correct? Yeah, I think Bolton was eager. He, he, You know, the Obama administration had opposed sending that lethal aid, um, but Bolton was a big advocate, and his predecessor, H.R. McMaster, was a big advocate. And then lastly, I think it's important to note that pretty much everyone in the United States government was a big advocate in the Trump administration. So the defense secretary, the secretary of state, Bolton, um, the CIA, all wanted this aid to flow. So uh, in your reporting, we also know that at a certain point, Bolton did go to meet uh, with President Zelensky. What do we know about that? So that's a weird meeting. He goes August 27th, which is four days before Pence is supposed to meet with him in, in Warsaw on the side of on the, the uh, Pence is supposed to meet with him one on one in Warsaw. And originally Trump was going to make that trip. But because of a hurricane barreling towards Florida, Pence goes. Uh, but so when Bolton meets with him on August 27th, at that point, the aid has been frozen that the Ukrainians desperately want. The meeting that they desperately want is in limbo. But as far as we can tell, None of that really is the focus of the conversation. On August 27th, most of the Ukrainians, at least Zelensky, the president, and his inner circle don't know that the aid's been frozen, and Bolton doesn't tell them that it's essentially been frozen at that point for more than a month. So they end up talking about sort of an obscure Chinese, uh, an obscure Ukrainian defense company that the Chinese are trying to buy and that the Americans don't want them to, to buy. And that ends up being the focus of that conversation. It's a, it's a really odd one. 
So, um, well, there's so many things to say about this, but maybe we can just sort of talk a little bit about where where Bolton is in this story right now. So, as I said at the beginning, his lawyer has kind of let drop this idea that he uh, he was part of some meetings that haven't ever even been talked about. Now, as national security advisor, he'd probably be in a position to have one-on-one meetings uh, with the president at, at times, or at least very, very small and more intimate meetings with the president from time to time. The question is, does he have any desire to tell the world what went on in those meetings? And it's, it's, I don't think it's entirely clear the answer to that question. I mean, what's, what's your take on what the position is right now? So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's one thing I can say with certainty, if he wanted to testify, mm-hmm. he could. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not going to go to jail. He's not going to get sent to Gitmo. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> terrible is going to happen to him. Um, I think his argument which is not a wrong one, is that um, he's different than the other senior White House officials who've testified so far because of the closeness of his relationship with the president um, and that, uh, you know, he has obligations um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, that he has to fulfill that those others don't. Um, In terms of the meetings, I think there's one big meeting that we'd like to know more about that we don't, that he led, um, that came out of... um, Colonel Vindman's testimony. Colonel Vindman is an army officer who is an ex, uh, Ukraine expert on the NSC staff. Kind of in mid-August when the aid is frozen, I think it's August 12th, Vindman prepares a decision memo for Bolton, essentially a memo that says this aid needs to go forward. Everybody says it needs to go forward. And then Bolton carries that to a meeting with the president. Also attending that meeting are Defense Secretary Esper and Secretary of State Pompeo. Now, we come out of that meeting with no decision. The aid continues to be frozen. Um, and we, Vindman gets conflicting ap- accounts of what was discussed in that meeting. He doesn't attend. Some people say that the decision memo that uh, Vindman wrote up for Bolton never comes up. They don't discuss the aid. Some say they discuss the aid and it's put off. But Bolton would have a very clear idea or would be able to tell us very clearly what the president said about the aid and what the conditions were for releasing it coming out of that meeting. And we just don't know what happened there. And so that could be what uh, Bolton's lawyer is referring to. Right. We also know, uh, I guess, that as a matter of habit, Bolton was a ferocious note taker and that I'm pretty sure that I've read in other accounts and under other circumstances that Trump is not a big fan of people taking notes in meetings. He wants everybody to look right at him. Uh, He wants to know why people are writing stuff down. That apparently didn't stop Bolton. He he really takes a a lot of notes. So presumably he's memorialized things that might be sketchy in the memory of, of other people, thus making his recollection of that particular meeting, you know, even more interesting or at least possibly maybe easier to substantiate? Yeah, I think that's true. And the other really important thing about Bolton is that most of the witnesses that have been called so far didn't have conversations with President Trump about Ukraine. You know, they're hearing things sort of secondhand. The exception to that is Gordon Sundland, the EU ambassador, who has kind of three to four very brief conversations with Trump about what Trump wants from Ukraine, most of which... uh, he describes as bad conversations. The president's in a bad mood and is kind of yelling at him. Um, but Sondland's a problem, too, because he's proven to be a very unreliable witness with kind of massive memory gaps and problems, it seems, telling the truth. 
You know, there, there's been some reporting, and I don't know how substantiated it is or, or what you make of it. There, there's some reporting that at a certain point in this kind of compressed time period uh, that we're talking about, August, September, that, um, that you know, the, the number, the amount of the aid, it, initially it was very confusing to me because different numbers were quoted. I think I now understand that there's $391 million, but it's sort of in two chunks, $250 million and $141 million, and that the $141 million may not have required an OMB green light to get over to Ukraine and that Pompeo, Esper, and Bolton were sort of hatching a plot or trying to find a way to get that money to Ukraine without Mulvaney knowing about it. Like, can we just send it? Is it already kind of all wrapped up for delivery? Can we just send it and essentially not tell President Trump or anybody who might tell President Trump? I don't know. What do you make of all that? You know, I hadn't heard that, so this is the first time okay. I'm hearing it. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I assume, too, and I, I don't know this, but that the defense aid and the State Department aid right. would be for different things. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Again, so that I would be this. Know. Yeah, it's the State Department aid that, that may have been sort of released a little bit early with, with Bolton's help. So another, I think one yeah. thing that's not clear as well is whether it was even legal to put a hold on this aid. I know that in a bunch of the meetings after the aid is put on hold, the Defense Department lawyers are questioning whether. You know, this aid was appropriated by Congress, which has decided that this is how it should be spent. And so there's a big debate inside the NSC about whether it's even, you know, whether they can legally not give it to the Ukrainians at this point. So back to Bolton and his will willingness to testify. I, you know, reading all the reportage, it's hard to tell which thing is more likely to be true. And you may be as agnostic on this as, as I am. But so the, but in one scenario, he really doesn't want to testify. He does regard his relationship with the president or his positional relationship with the president as having a kind of privileged or privileged quality to it uh, that would make it uh, a little less uh, liable to subpoena uh, that, you know, he really sees this as a, a better scenario if he never tells anybody what he knows. Um, although that makes you kind of wonder why his lawyer would mention that he, he knew things that hadn't really come out yet. You know, the, he just signed a giant book deal. Well, yeah, you know, I was going to I was I was going to come to that. I was going to come to that. But so the other scenario is he wants to testify, but he kind of doesn't want to lose face. He doesn't want to look like a rat or a weasel. So he's essentially saying to the House impeachment inquiry, make me do it. If you make me do it, I can do it. You know, but you have to compel me via the courts so that I can sort of say to the other side, to my conservative friends, well, I had no choice. Yeah, that may be what's going on here. I, I don't I don't know. Um, and the House impeachment, uh, the House intelligence folks seem not inclined to, to kind of wait for the courts uh, and to wait for Bolton either because they don't think it's going to be worth it or because they don't need it. Um, so it's hard to tell what Bolton's uh, agenda is here. I mean, I, I think the other thing that's worth noting is that, you know, Bolton um, story is a little complicated, too. You know, he sends um, one of his top aides, Fiona Hill, to uh, the NSC lawyer, John Eisenberg, to complain um, or to, to voice concerns about what's going on. But it's not clear what he does to stop it. At times it feels like, um, you know, he's got other problems that he's worrying about. Ukraine is not the top of his list and that um, he doesn't go out of his way to try and put the brakes on this, at least from what we know now. There may be some things that we don't know. Um, so, uh, you know, his story might be more complicated than it, than it seems. 
Right. He's not a whistleblower, I guess we should say. No, he's not Clear, a whistleblower. Clearly not a whistleblower. <laughs> not not a whistleblower. Um, but, yes, yeah, so to the thing you referenced before. On the other hand, I mean, there are two things that uh, traditionally can get people to tell what they know. One of them is the threat of having to go to jail uh, for contempt. And the other is a book deal. So he has the latter. According to some re- uh, reporting, he may have as much of as a $2 million book deal. So, so uh, what do we think about that? I mean, is that likely to contain some of this? stuff that we're talking about now? I think I have no idea. I mean, it certainly seems like the lawyer statements. I mean, on the one hand, he could be telling us exactly what John Bolton's told him, exactly the truth. This could be, you know, 100% the way he's characterized it. It could be that they're trying to goose their book sales, too. I mean, I think it's really hard to know somebody's motivation when they are not talking at all. Um, uh, last question uh, about all this, uh, Greg Jaffe, which is he also doesn't have a completely free hand, right? In other words, uh, he may be a voluminous note taker, but he would be required during the offboarding process when he left his position uh, as national security advisor, he would be required to turn over anything he had that was classified. And, and I would assume probably to clear, uh, you know, things that he knew, things that he'd written down. I mean, you can't just leave a job like that and go blab to the first person who asks you. That's true. He may have not been able to take all of his notes, but he certainly has a sense of what Trump wanted and when he wanted it. Um, You know, I don't think you need notes to remember um, some of these conversations. All right. Greg Jaffe, national political reporter for The Washington Post. He joins us. uh, He has joined us by Skype. Thanks for doing this, sir. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Um, We're going to go to a break. Before we go to a break, I have a couple of things I need to talk to you about, a little sort of housekeeping items. I mean, so my, my, my tone is alarming, like I need you to do something or you haven't done the dishes lately or it's not like that, I promise. Um, so first of all, we, as you probably know, we're having a 10th anniversary party. It's two days from now, Wednesday, November 13th. You can still get tickets, although we're, it's, we're running low. So if it's like an important thing for you, we still have some, but, but we don't have them in giant supply. So if you want to come to this party, and we're having this party because we want to see you. We want to see listeners. We want to have a chance to say thank you. Thank you for caring about the show, all this stuff. So uh, it is important to us. And you go to WNPR.org, and there's a little – you see a little picture of me, and you click on that, and that tells you how to order your tickets. But do it. Do it now, like today, So because we're running out of time here. Okay. So then um, – the other thing is a tiny bit more complicated, uh, which is that um, uh, these hearings, to which we are sort of obliquely referring in our conversation with Greg Jaffe, these hearings are coming along and they're going to come fast and furious. And there are some decisions that are going to be made about how we're going to cover them, how this company is going to cover them. And um, I, I, so these are not my pay grade, those decisions, but um, I can tell you this week we're going to cover, we're going to carry live on WNPR and on one of the CPTV channels. Uh, we are Spirit, right? Is it Spirit? I think it's Spirit. CPTV Spirit. Don't hold me to that, though. Um, so um, we're going to cover the hearings. Uh, we're going to carry them live, which means that our show will be preempted on Wednesday and Friday. So um, And so obviously that's going to happen more and more as we go along here. As these hearings warm up and heat up, uh, there's going to be more live coverage. We know that this is a historic moment uh, and that we're, you know, people want to, in, in some cases, experience it live. Uh, my guess is that the station is going to lean toward carrying stuff when there are impeachment hearings. If we get to the point of a trial, I can pretty much guarantee you that if the Senate trial happens – 
uh, we will carry that gavel to gavel as well. So one of the things that we're thinking about is how can we be useful, particularly if we're getting preempted a lot by this stuff. I mean, we, we don't want to not do shows. Um, I suppose we could treat it as a sort of a sabbatical, but that's not really, I mean, this is a really exciting time and a time that we want to be involved as journalists. So one thing we're beginning to talk about, and in some ways it's a little premature to tell you about it, except that I think we also welcome your input. You can always email me at Colin at WNPR, Colin at WNPR. That's pretty easy, right? Oh, WNPR.org, I should say. Yes, thank you. Um, So um, you can email me there. And so one of the things we're beginning to talk about is whether it makes sense for us to develop our own impeachment podcast so that on days when we're preempted, we can instead be working on a recap, analysis, and set of reactions to the impeachment hearings of that day or to the Senate trial if it's going on. Uh, And that that would sort of be a way that we could make ourselves feel useful and possibly be helpful and useful to you. Um, So we haven't quite pulled the trigger on that idea, but my guess is that we're headed in that direction. We'd love to hear from you about that, though. We're also talking about, this is the last thing I'll say, but um, but we're also talking about the fact that you'll probably, over the course of the rest of November and December and January, which is when I would personally guess that the Senate trial would happen if it happens, uh, is January. You probably also want other things in your life, right? Because it can get a little overwhelming. It can blot out the whole sky. So we've also talked about, well, maybe we should make sure we still do the nose, our Friday cultural roundtable. So, you know, you have like other stuff you can think about besides this. So I, all those things are things we're thinking about and talking about. I wanted you to know them now rather than when they're a done deal and you're just having to live with them. And if you have things to say, you can jump on the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook or my my own page on Facebook, or you can tweet at us at WNPR Colin on Twitter. You can email me at Colin at WNPR.org. You can do all those things, and we'd love to hear what you think about it. All right, so with that, we have to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about a, a mystery unconnected to the USSR, but a mystery nonetheless. There's battle lines being drawn, and nobody's right. If everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind I think the time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down All right, we're back. Um, so Carrie Saxon Perry uh, was the first black female mayor uh, of uh, any major New England city. Um, that was uh, back uh, quite a long time ago, from 1987 to 1993. It was three terms. If you were alive and conscious and somewhere around Hartford, then you knew her perhaps mainly because of her hats. Uh, she was kind of famous for, like Bella Abzug, one of her contemporaries, she's kind of famous for a, a big hat collection, which was, I, I think, well, anyway, we can talk about why she wore hats. Uh, but... Um, but anyway, she was pretty well known, uh, and she was mayor of Hartford. It was before we had a strong mayor system, so it was a different kind of position. Uh, but uh, what we found out a few days ago was that Mary Carrie Paxson, Carrie, Carrie Saxon Perry, our former mayor of Hartford, had died. The thing that was unusual was that she hadn't died within the last few days. She died about a year ago. So uh, we still don't quite understand all this, but one of the people who's trying hard to understand is Rebecca Lurie, who covers the city of Hartford for the Hartford Current. She's in the studio with me. Welcome back, Rebecca Lurie. 
Thank you for having me. So maybe we should just begin by fleshing out a little bit more that that uh, portrait of Carrie Saxon Perry, former state legislator as well, and then uh, mayor of Hartford. Uh, what else? This is. You're new to this story. Very. <laughs> I lived through her time, but you're new to the story. What about this story uh, strikes you, the story of her being mayor of Hartford? Yeah, I'm jealous of everyone who, who lived through this um, story and got to know her and, you know, the, walk the streets and see her drive by in her Lincoln Town car, just like a hat peeking over the window. Um, She's very short. Yeah. <laughs> she was a hugely important Hartford and, and uh, historical figure. She was the, the first... Um, black female mayor of Hartford, but she she served as this inspiration to uh, both women and African Americans. Um, she was a, a social worker who was highly educated. She she studied uh, law before coming back to Hartford and and being a community leader. She um, was head of uh, the Amistad House, which was this um, group home for girls in Hartford, which is where she started wearing her hats because she was so busy all the time, but she still wanted to show that she, like a, a professional role model for these girls. And, and then she became a state legislator for uh, four terms representing Hartford and, and broke into Hartford politics uh, following uh, Mayor Thurman Milner, where she pushed for, um, she really continued on the civil rights bedrock that he had started on and talking to people that knew her and worked with her. She was most proud of the progress she pushed for LGBT rights in Hartford. She set up the first mayor's commission um, to advance that uh, civil rights issue. And she also pressed endlessly for uh, more awareness of the effect that racism had on, on cities like Hartford with redlining, with racial profiling and all of that. Right. She was a name that people knew, people and uh, people didn't know the trademark hat. So it would have made sense at the time that she died for there to be, uh, as well, actually there was in the Hartford Current, big page one story. Uh, but just a year later, she died in November 22nd of last year in Waterbury. Uh, there would have made sense for there to be some kind of major memorial service. Uh, I think, uh, as one of your articles pointed out, probably flags at half mast and things like that. But none of those things happened because Almost literally nobody outside, probably her immediate family, knew. You talked to people, people like John Britton, who was uh, the lawyer in one of the great Hartford court cases of that era, uh, people like that who knew her well, who did not know, except from hearing it from the Hartford Current, that she had died a year ago. Right. I, I worked on these stories with um, Dave Altamari and Rick Green, who covered her at the time. And, and everyone we talked to, it was, it was so awful to call them and tell them that we're basically going to the people who knew her best and asking, do they know anything? And then to go back to them and have to tell them that, yes, she had actually passed away and they didn't know. Um, and it's it sort of, this was possible, this strange thing, because she did retreat from the public eye and she wanted to kind of live out the rest of her days keeping to herself. And mm -hmm. and so people over the years tried to keep track of her and tried to you know see if she was still living in Hartford for decades, people thought she wasn't even living in Hartford when she was still at the same home on Imlay um, that she'd been in when she was mayor. Right. So um, after all of this poking around and asking people, you asked people who hadn't been informed, um, 
presumably, I mean, she had uh, offspring, she had a sibling. Uh, presumably, they knew. We know that she was cremated pretty shortly, I think five days after uh, her death in Berlin. Do Are you any closer to understanding why this was just not the kind of public story that we would expect, particularly for somebody who was a holder of some important firsts? This is a person who really did blaze a trail to a certain degree. Why none of that happened? Not yet, <laughs> um, unfortunately. Some people are uh, saying that this is how she would have wanted things, that she wouldn't have wanted fanfare and she wouldn't have wanted um, a, a big fuss, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not managed to talk to any of her family yet. And so the people who are saying those things, I don't know if that is speculation or if they're speaking from a place of authority where they've talked to the family. But people who you would hope would have known didn't know. You know? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I would just observe a couple of things based on no reporting whatsoever. But first of all, <laughs> pe- <for> <laughs> people people who are active in politics to the extent of s- serving three terms of may- as mayor and time in the legislature before that, they tend not to be the kinds of people who want to die unremarked. I mean, I suppose there's an exception to every pattern, but this would be the exception. I can't really, th- I've covered a lot of politicians. I can't think of anybody who would have taken that kind of an approach. I mean, I think it's sort of one thing to be, have a kind of Garbo-esque, you know, I want to be left alone thing in your later life. But the notion that she wouldn't want an obituary is kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around, except that people are human. You know, it's one of these things that we sometimes forget. People are human. Families are human. I can just tell you out of my own personal experience, my mother, when my father died, didn't want there to be an obituary or a memorial service or anything like that. And I said, well, and I have eventually kind of overrode her. I said, there's going to be obituaries. I'm even thinking the New York Times may do an, ob- an obituary, which they did. Um, but, I mean, her, her thought was no. And so families, I mean, it had been quite a few years, decades really, since she'd been in the public eye. And families start to live a different reality. And so maybe that's, that's part of it. I, I don't know. I just offer that as kind of a, a, a speculation. One thing that we do know from your reporting is that the house or the sort of row house, townhouse, I don't know what you'd call it, that she had owned on Imlay Street and where she did live for many years, that had come on to financial hard times and I believe had been foreclosed on. It was not that long ago that she was still living there, but we do know that, right? Yes, that was one of the, the few clues that we were hoping would kind of shed some light on this. Um, because there's no probate case, there's no, you know, there's no, she didn't get a pension. She didn't get a pension for being mayor or for being a, a state uh, representative. But there was this uh, foreclosure case that um, her family lost and her family never responded to. So she, her children, um, they didn't, you know, participate at all in trying to keep the home. And then there was an eviction case to make sure that the, the bank could take, you know, ownership of the property. And it actually, ended the day before that she died, um, which was really a strange uh, twist. But it didn't end because she died. There was no mention in the case or the files that that this is what was going on or whether people were even living there. Right. I mean, it's, you know, reading all that, it struck me that it's possible that members of the family may have thought that somehow or other this situation where there were unsatisfied creditors uh, might be made worse somehow if people knew that that she was that she had died, although there doesn't appear to have been much of an estate or anything that people could have gone after. As you say, there'd been no probate case, but I guess there there doesn't have to be a probate. Uh, what did you find out about? I know you talked to John Killian, the probate judge, about this. So um, Dave Altamari did talk, and he was the one kind of tracking down this issue with the probate, and there's no law requiring that a probate case be opened after someone dies. 
Uh, but, you know, if she had assets, if she had an estate, then they need to be settled sometime. And then there's not really a time limit to file a probate case. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's sort of hard to say what we're left with. First of all, are you continuing to report this? Are you are you still – do you feel like you've written your last story about Carrie Saxon Perry or is this still something where there's some interest in still understanding why this was done so, so quietly? Well, I, I certainly hope it's not our last story. We're, we're trying to figure out now if anyone is planning any sort of memorial service or a celebration or – um, anything to mark her, um, you know, achievements and her contributions in Connecticut history. Um, and one person I talked to, um, Archa Winch, is a council member in Hartford, and she described it really well. Her mom knew um, Carrie Saxon Perry very well and campaigned with her. She said it's like a hole in, in the legacy for women and for African Americans. And so I think Hartford is going to find some way, or Connecticut, you know, Democrats, whoever, will find some way. Um, to mark this, but I, we're still trying to figure out what happened. Right. I, I, my guess is that there will be a memorial service. There kind of almost has to be now. And there's so many people who didn't know who do care. I know John Britton is no longer lives around here, but he's the kind of person I would expect to hear speaking at a service like like that. Uh, and you know, it just it's. I mean, when you think about it, anybody writing, say, a contemporary history of Hartford. Uh, you know, a, a history book about Hartford that encompasses the last 40 years. There's no way that you leave her out of that. So it just seems for to be so uncelebrated and so, um, you know, it just seems like such an odd thing to, for her to die in the shadows. Sometimes families even kind of forget who their relatives are, like how important they actually were. They just become mom or sister or whatever. But uh, so Rebecca Lurie, a- any final words here? Actually, if somebody has some information about this, uh, how should they find you? Oh, they should definitely reach out. Um, yeah, go and give me a call. I'm, I'm not, you know, embarrassed to give my cell phone for any tips. 860-681-2952. Let us know what you know. All right. Uh, or, or email is easy, too, as well. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, all right. So thanks for doing this, uh, and uh, good luck with the reporting. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we have one final story to tell you. It's a story that's being told on a terrific documentary podcast series. Uh, it's the story of two basketball legends from Connecticut, Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, but maybe a chapter of their incredible basketball careers that you don't know that much about, one that involves a Russian, I guess you could call him an oligarch, uh, Definitely a former KGB spy and probably somebody with some gangland connections. Okay, I, I guess, first of all, I want to say uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants. Uh, Betsy Kaplan usually does um, this episode, the, the Scramble on Mondays, but she's not here today, so he has taken over ably, I might add. Uh, and thanks also to Kion Wolf. She's running the board, making everything sound great. Um, I will quickly remind you one more time that we are sort of in the process of sorting out what we're going to do when National Public Radio live coverage of impeachment-related hearings and the possible Senate trial begins to preempt us a lot. One of the things we're debating doing is uh, an impeachment-related podcast. If you have thoughts about that, you can tweet them at us at WNPR, Colin, or email me at Colin at WNPR.org, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, 
Um, oh, this is exciting. Um, there's more to this segment than I even realized that there would be. So uh, it's possible that Diana Taurasi played the greatest game of her life, not for UConn or the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury, uh, but for a Russian team called Spartak. Uh, even more surprisingly, uh, it was a game whose outcome meant a great deal to her emotionally. Uh, and her time with that team and also uh, another UConn legend, Sue Bird's time with that team, uh, are the subject of a 30 for 30 podcast. This is ESPN's 30 for 30 series that's dropping tomorrow. It's called The Spy Who Signs uh, Signed Me. Uh, joining us is uh, Keith Romer, uh, a contributing reporter for Planet Money and a producer for the that ESPN 30 for 30 podcast. Uh, and also joining us, a little bit by surprise, is Sue Bird, which is uh, a great delight. Uh, Sue Bird, maybe I'll go to you first because I know that you're busy uh, these days what with um, Olympic qualifying and things like that. So uh, first of all, thanks for sparing the time. Um, tell us a little bit about how you wound up playing uh, for Spartak, and we'll talk a little bit about this very unusual man that you wound up playing for. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. You know, as, as women's basketball players in the U.S., you know, we have an opportunity in the WNBA, but that's just in the summer, and there are leagues that play overseas. You know, Russia is one of them, that, that one of the countries that, that has... Um, you know, a great league. It participates in EuroLeague, which is kind of the, the best league over there. And I was playing in Russia for a different team. And long story short, Shabtai is a, is a guy who loved women's basketball. And, and he had his own team. And he kind of lured myself and Diana um, over to his side. All right. So this is, uh, you're talking about Shabtai Kalmanovich. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll play a little bit of, you can hear your, yourself talking. Uh, this is uh, you <laughs> and Diana Tarasi talking about meeting Shabtai. So we sat down. There he is, the man, the legend, Shaftai. He was short. He was probably, I think he's shorter than I am. He was an interesting looking character. And he's got like a, uh, like a Humpty Dumpty type body type. He was dressed to impress. Classic suit, always a white shirt. You knew everything he had was a lot of money. This man looked like put together. And then there was the hair. Um, I mean, it's hard to see past the mullet. I'm not going to lie. It's incredible, this mullet that he had. The mullet is curly. He, it's just amazing how he got away with this mullet. I think the first thing I said is, I won't play in this country ever again. <laughs> he was like, you haven't seen Russia. You don't know Russia the way I can show you Russia. All right. Um, Super, I have to say, one of the things that I enjoyed very much about this podcast is the dynamic between you and uh, Diana Taurasi. She seems to really shoot from the hip and sometimes mm -hmm. say very blunt things. Uh, she describes a Russian coach that the two of you didn't like, uh, who she refers to as anus. And you uh, try to correct her pronunciation and say, I think it's anus. <laughs> she says, yeah. no. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. All true stories. All true stories. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Keith Romer, uh, as you're listening to this, maybe we can also set this up a little bit. One of the things that I think that you document very well in this documentary uh, is the way that uh, WNBA players uh, are often not getting compensated the way you might imagine a couple of UConn basketball legends and, and that what's, what's available overseas, Keith, is very different. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the maximum salary, as, as Sue and, and Diana, I'm sure, would be happy to tell you themselves, for the WNBA is about $117,000, $118,000 a year, which, you know, on its face is a great salary, but but is not necessarily a great salary if you are the best person in the world at, at your job. Um, and so going overseas, um, 
these women can earn three, four, five, ten times that amount playing in Russia or China or Turkey, um, and that you know that puts them in a very different spot in terms of you know maybe a, an NBA player. Now, this man, uh, Sue Bird Shabtai, he emerges as a very interesting character in the documentary. He's a guy with a colorful past. I mean, it seems a fairly good certainty that he was uh, a KGB spy uh, in Israel. Uh, He also appears to have some connections to the modern-day Russian underworld. But there's another side to him. I mean, you kind of describe him as this kind of humpty-dumpty, roly-poly sort of father figure, a person who really welcomed you in, not just to his team, but kind of into his life a little bit, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the (laughs) humpty-dumpty comment is more just like a description. He couldn't be further from a humpty-dumpty type character. I mean, when when we talked about how put together he was, um, he was just, he had a suaveness about him, a smoothness. um, And, you know, he was charismatic in that way. And he, he, it was somebody you wanted to be around. You wanted to sit and listen to his stories. You wanted to be around him, go to dinner, kind of see things through his eyes. Um, and like you said, he really was welcoming. I think he understood that these these Americans he was bringing to Russia, he was going to have to take care of them. And that's really all he wanted to do. I mean, you heard, I think what's, what's so great about this this little podcast is that it's, it's just a glimpse. I mean, I know the stories of Shabtai, and it left me wanting to hear more, you know, because it was just a small dose of what he did to, to allow us to earn a living, enjoy our time in Russia, and really just take care of us. Um, you know, one of my uh, favorite stories is how he had he had two little sons, so now they're probably, gosh, 13, 14. So they were, they were young back then. And they, they didn't really speak English, but they knew the song, We Are Family. And so every time we'd see them, he would have them saying, We are family. And that was literally <laughs> who he was. Like, he just wanted to, like, kick it with his family. And that's how we felt. I mean, one of the things that's interestingly described uh, uh, in the podcast, Sue, is the way that because you were very well taken care of of, and very well compensated uh, by this club and by this man uh, and and put up in in very comfortable accommodations, whether you were uh, at home or on the road, that going back to the WNBA was a little bit hard, right? I mean, I think Diana describes staying in hotels where the air conditioner doesn't really cool the room. It just makes a lot of noise. It's just sort of different, right? That's so Diana. Um, yeah, it was different, you know, and I think what we basically did was just like compartmentalize. Like we, we just kind of accepted how things are, which in some ways I, I'm, I might even regret a little bit that we didn't push even back then. Cause now, now that, you know, things are kind of changing for women in sports, there, there's definitely more of a push and people are more outspoken. We probably could have done that more, but looking back, I really think we just kind of was like, all right, this is how it is. You know, we play this game here, we get treated this way, and then we go over there, we play the game, we get treated that way. And this is our lives. All right. I want to play a little bit more from the podcast. You're going to hear Sue Bird and then Keith Romer and then Diana Taurasi talking about this man, Shabdai. Loved his family, loved women's basketball, loved us, viewed us as performers and entertainers and wanted to share our talents with the world. And then also he was, you know, I was going to say providing, but he was allowing us to like have a career and make tons of money doing it. And and with that, you're able to take that home and have a life. However well Shabtai might have treated Sue and Diana, somewhere in the back of their minds, there was always some uncertainty about just who he really was. You know, every time we'd go to a 
an opposing city to, to play a team. There's always a black SUV with a guy holding a suitcase waiting for him. I mean, every single time. Any city we went to. Although we clipped my favorite part of that clip, which is when Diana Taurasi says, it could have been full of shrimp. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but but we think it, we think that it wasn't. You know, um, Sue Bird, the, the podcast ends uh, with Diana Taurasi talking a little bit about that. Like, would it have made a difference? I, I'm not going to spoil part of the podcast. Um, it, it, there's a tragedy that takes place. I won't say what it was. People can probably take a guess, or if they're really curious, they can just look it up. But um, there, there's a way in which this has a, a very unhappy uh, ending. But afterwards, we hear Diana Taurasi reflecting. Like, would it have made a difference, given how incredibly nurturing he was, given the fact that he stood up and took care of women's basketball, that he cared about it, that he promoted it, that he compensated you in a way that seemed uh, to match up more closely to your talents and accomplishments than what you get here in your own country? Would it have made a difference to have known one or two darker secrets about this man? And she's, I think she, at the end she goes, I don't know, maybe it would, but maybe it wouldn't have. What's your take on all that? Yeah, I think Dee actually, you know, hit it on the head. Um, because like we say on the podcast, like we had, we knew that there was like another side. We didn't see it. We weren't like privy to all the information, but we kind of understood that. Um, not in like some terrible, terrible way. Like I know I mentioned on there, like murdering and whatnot. Never did I think that about him. Um, but, you know, we knew there was probably ties there to, to, to other things, to other you know, criminal acts. Although there is a reporter on there that kind of hits it. The one, the one element of this is that we're in Russia. Russia is not America. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but th- they do do things differently. He, one of the guys on there, I think he, like I said, he just totally sums it up. He's like, were, were there criminal acts happening? Yeah. But in Russia, is that criminal? No. And so I, I, I say this to say, I don't know either. And I think D really does hit it. It's just, yeah, the good person in you wants to say it would matter. Um, but then you have this guy who I can actually take the money out. Um, I can take the money out of the equation. He cared mm-hmm. and he wanted what was best. And when you have somebody doing that for you, um, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, it's tough. And I think that in large part is what's missing in our country in women's basketball. That's missing people who actually just care and who give a shit and excuse my language. And <laughs> I think, sorry about that. And I think, um, when you, when you see that in someone, um, you know, that, that's the, the good part of, of Shabtai that we got to experience. Um, and, and you obviously develop you know, a connection in that way. So I think, I think D really, what she did, what she said is exactly how I feel. So um, Keith Romer, towards the end here, and once again, I'm trying not to do a spoiler, but there's this, uh, there's a tragedy and there's kind of a moment also where it's no longer clear whether the money, the substantial amounts uh, of salary that these players, not just uh, Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, but all the players have been receiving. And, and Taurasi says to someone, she at a team meeting, I guess, stands up and goes, well, I mean, if it comes to that, uh, I'll just finish this season for free because this is important in, in some other ways. And and what takes over is sort of a kind of somewhat more violent version of Hoosiers. You know, there's this sense of this incredibly, you know, spirited group of players who are going to, in an interesting way, make their mark on international basketball history. Keith, maybe you could say a little bit more about that. I mean, one of the thrills of, of reporting this story was was getting to sit in a room with with Diana Taurasi and ask her about one of the greatest basketball games she ever played, and her her sort of description of of being in the zone and and what it feels like to 
just kind of disappear as a person and, and mm-hmm. take over a basketball game was one of the most sort of thrilling moments of my reporting career to just sit with the greatest women's basketball player of all time as she describes just not hearing the crowd, not seeing the other players, not following the plays, but just everything going perfectly at this moment when she when she really needed it to. You know, Sue Bird, um, one thing that's not in the documentary, but but that kind of so that we should say that the documentary kind of ends in 2009. Well, six years later, Diana Taurasi is asked to sit out a WNBA season at the request of the Russian team she's playing for, which I might add is, I believe, Ekaterinburg, which is the the sort of Red Sox Yankee rivalry. She's so she was sort of on the other. You guys were sort of on the other team, a Spartak that had the r- rivalry with them. And, and and at the moment that she makes that decision to sit, sit out that season, I mean, the Russian team is still playing her, paying her something like fourteen times her WNBA salary, which suggests to me. I mean, you said at one point maybe we should have pushed more. Well, people are pushing now, and there are still these incredible disparities. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think um, to sum it up quickly, I just think that you know a lot of people in our in our culture. You know, when they talk about women's sports, the first things out of their mouth are, oh, they lose money or, oh, they don't get the And it's just the investment hasn't been the same. And I think what Russia shows you is it's not, this isn't a business model over there. You know, this isn't that they, you know, have, have they figured it out and they know how to like build this business and have this revenue. These are people who, who like women's basketball. And I think it's fair to compare it to, to people in our country who just like men's sports. And so they go, hey, I like men's sports. I want to own an MLS team or I want to own an NBA team. And they're not even thinking about the bottom line. Same thing over there. And what ends up happening is you have great basketball play. All of a sudden fans start coming. Things start to, you know, roll in your direction because you're investing. And I'm not even just talking about money. You know, obviously something in America that we are constantly begging for is media coverage. Um, And that has nothing to do necessarily with money. I mean, from what I understand, we get 2% of media coverage in terms of sports. So it's just interesting to have to, to see what it could be like when women's basketball, when women's sports are invested in. And that's what these, these teams overseas, um, particularly the Russian teams, you know, you brought up a Katerinburg, that, that's a great example now. That's what it looks like when you just invest in these players and then you end up getting a great product. Uh, Keith, uh, we, remember, we've only got about a minute left, and I'm sorry for that. But, I mean, another way to think about what she's just saying, though, is one reason this could get paid for may have something to do with the suitcases full of money, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Shabtai, in a way, was was a patron of women's basketball the way that somebody else might be a patron of the arts. Um, you know, their their stadiums weren't you know they weren't selling out forty thousand seat stadiums and making it on on the back of their their ticket sales and their TV deals. They were really making it because he cared about it so much. And you know, I had heard also said that maybe it got him in good graces with local governments that help him do real estate deals. That may have been a part of it, but but certainly. It was because he loved the game and was willing to put out the money to make that team what it was. All right. The story of a basketball Medici. Uh, thanks to Keith Romer. Thanks to Sue Bird. An amazing privilege to get to talk to a basketball uh, legend. It's called The Spy Who Signed Me. It's a 30 for 30 ESPN podcast. It drops tomorrow. Don't miss it. We didn't tell you the you know the most exciting part of the story. 